Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, we'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's manager meetings, Ellen Ellison speaks with John Brolin. Ellen is the former chief investment officer of the University of Illinois Foundation, which she joined in 2013 as the first leader of the now $2.4 billion foundation. 
John is the founder and managing partner of Edenbrook Capital, a $400 million manager of a concentrated portfolio of micro and small cap U.S. equities. Edenbrook applies a private markets approach to public markets, intending to own and add value to its portfolio companies over a multi-year time horizon. First, Ellen and I discuss how she came to find an off-the-run manager and some of her process in getting over the hurdles to allocate to what became a very successful partnership. Ellen, great to see you. Hi, Ted. How are you today? I'm doing great, thanks. So I'm really curious to start in this conversation you have with John. How do you go about sourcing a manager that, as you'll hear, mostly keeps to himself and is kind of off the run from traditional circles? Yes. John is in Westchester County in a very small town, and I think he likes it that way. He is one of those managers who thinks that part of his expertise and strength comes from not being in the consensus view or being in downtown Manhattan or in a hedge fund motel. We meet a lot of people and we're introduced to a lot of people who are starting out or have new ideas. And I try to make it known to a variety of people that we like to talk to brand new managers. And even though John wasn't brand, brand new, we convinced him to launch a long only strategy and we're the first capital in. So it does take more time, but the benefits of an enhanced partnership that's really going to last a very, very long time are more than worth the extra efforts up front as you try to mitigate the new business risk, which frankly for me is a really big part of the discussion when you're underwriting a brand new manager like John. How'd you go about meeting him? I believe I met John in 2013 at a conference in Aspen and just got to know him very gradually over a three-year period, lots of conversations. I didn't set out looking for a U.S. microcap manager, but I liked very much the fact that he was concentrated, the fact that he used a private equity lens to everything he did in the public markets. And I have to say, I thought he had the right temperament for someone to run a very concentrated highly volatile mark-to-market strategy. And I have to say, I think I was right because John is one of the rare managers who honestly does not care when the public markets are not reflecting back that he's smart. In fact, it's sometimes painful to see how indifferent he is to what the public markets are saying about what he thinks. So he just impressed the hell out of me. With someone like John who is self-professed, self-taught, how do you think about what he doesn't know? I think that he's he is like a private equity person who would have two or three verticals that he knew really well. And I don't think he intends to really stray from that. So I'm not so sure he's particularly worried about that, which he doesn't know because he's not going there in the first place. This deep fundamental knowledge and deep conviction and long-term capital, et cetera, has meant that... I can't really say there's a situation that I've observed in the last seven years where he actually got out over his skis. So that's a great question, but I don't think he goes there would be my answer. I don't know what you think about that. So once you got to know him over a couple of years and you were thinking you were ready to make an investment, how do you go about doing that confirmational due diligence on someone who 
as we've talked about, is probably off the run, doesn't really network with a lot of the managers you might already have in your portfolio? Well, we spoke to the managements of some of his companies in the portfolio to really get confirmation that what he said he was doing with them was in fact what was happening. And he has built some very long-term constructive relationships with public company managers. We got great confirmation that this was someone who really was helpful to the newly public company, someone who had a long-term view, someone who was willing, if necessary, even to step on the board of one of his portfolio companies, despite the fact that the trade-off was that he would be restricted. So that really helped a lot. We did a lot of off-reference checks. I met his wife, I met his kids, I met his dog. We just did a lot of background checking, previous employers. Also, he's the kind of person who has only built his team from people he's worked with before. So he's very much a long-term relationship family guy. And I just was able to develop a very deep sense of trust with John. We did ladder in our exposure, but for a long time, we were the largest single investor in his long-only fund. My operations person did spend a lot of time talking to him and then ultimately his COO about, all right, once you get a little more traction, what are the steps that you're going to take to beef up the middle and back office as most new funds that they were pretty bare bones when they started. But it was always an ongoing iterative dialogue that I felt pretty confident in. How did you go about managing around almost the known volatility that you could expect going in in a concentrated microcap strategy? It was helpful that the governance of the University of Illinois Foundation's portfolio was such that we had from day one, risk was not defined as mark-to-market volatility. John's strategy is very punchy. And there were months when he was up double digits and months when he was down double digits. We have also had a very concentrated portfolio to boot. So he's one of 40, 45 managers across the portfolio. But there were periods of time which you could start to see that he was building a really great record. I really tried to ignore the month to month or even quarter to quarter, as long as we knew that he was not really deviating at all from the strategy he had set out. Certainly, we had to really manage expectations both relative to the team. And I think some of my newer team members were were like, wow, this is really punchy. But from a governance or board standpoint, it wasn't a problem. But you're absolutely right. This is not necessarily the strategy for everyone. And I think that now that he has had such a run of success, he's very careful to set expectations for any newer LPs because he can easily be down 20, 25% in a quarter. That is not a big deal. How did you go about sizing the position, particularly relative to, say, another public equity manager or a private equity manager in your portfolio? We have fairly chunky positions. So a starting position would be about 2%. And then John is the kind of manager who will call to say, oh, the upside to intrinsic value is terrific. You should add more to the fund. Or he's even called to say, you should do a direct sidecar investment with your custodian. He's probably the single largest equity position due to growth. So I couldn't ask for anything more. I really think so highly of John, and I know he will be successful for the next 20 years just doing his thing. That's great. Well, Ellen, thanks again, and thanks for uh, sharing John with us. 
John, thanks so much for agreeing to be my guinea pig. I appreciate your confidence in me. Ellen, thank you so much for having me. I'd really like to start out with your background and path to Edenbrook. You write great quarterly letters that are grounded in your tremendous love of baseball. So what is the role of baseball in your life and in work? And how does that all fit together for you? First of all, I'm a, an enormous fan of the game. I played it growing up. I uh, was a fan. I read about it. I watch it. I've coached it. I coached my son's team in over 400 games. It's a regular part of our daily lives. My son's a competitive player at the high school level now and in summer travel seasons. So it's a part of our life all the time. Many of my early dates with my then girlfriend, now wife, were at baseball games. She's a converted Met fan. Come over to our love of the Red Sox. So there's the aspect of the game in general that I just love, but it ties in so well to investing in so many ways, which is why I write about it all the time, because football is such a quick hit sport, and that's more like a short-term trading kind of strategy, whereas baseball has so many more occurrences. There are so many days, there are so many innings, there are so many pitches, there's so much data to analyze that it lends itself to longer periods of reflection Going to a game affords you the opportunity to have a conversation with somebody that you go to. You, know, you go to a basketball game and it's just up and down the court very quickly and there's not a lot of time for reflection. There's, there's a nice rhythm to baseball that allows for that reflection, but there's also a nice rhythm to the season, to having so many data points over a longer period of time where you can really see process play out. In a shorter time span, fewer occurrences, luck can play a much bigger role. With more occurrences the constancy of process is much more important. And there's something about that that gelled with me at a very early age, and it ties in so well to investing in the fact that I'm fortunate enough to have this platform through my letters where I can talk about something that I love so much in baseball and something that I love so much in investing and tie them together is a real luxury. And I know that, and I know that it's an indulgence for me to be able to do that. And it's a burden on all of my readers who don't care about baseball to have to suffer through that <laughs> on a regular basis. Every now and then we write about something else. I think there's a reason why so much great literature centers around baseball. So many of the great writers who wrote for The New Yorker many years ago wrote about baseball, and there is something to it that lends itself to the market and our strategy. And this is all going to tie into why in today's crazed world of what did I just read about in a 280 character tweet that I now have to go invest in, that and watching something play out over a a season of 162 games, those two things don't necessarily go together. So I think there's something about the patience of it that also ties in to our strategy. Well, today's markets are certainly much more reminiscent of the activity level of basketball or football relative to baseball. So we're going to go back to that theme. So I'd like to talk a, a moment about some of your early mentors in school and early job experiences that have led you on this path to establishing your firm now 10 years old. Sure. A little bit of background. I grew up in northern New Jersey. I went to Penn undergrad, started working in banking right out of college. Did that for two years, worked for a private equity firm for three years up in Boston, came back to New York, went to business school at Columbia, switched to the public buy side in 2003, and have been on the public buy side now for 18 years, and started my own firm 10 years ago. Mentor-wise, not to sound ungracious to those who were kind enough to employ me, but most of the things that I learned at places I worked were things that I wanted to change, which is one of the reasons I really wanted to start my own firm, because I was so committed to the investment process and the rigors and intellectual honesty of a real process 
being paramount. So most of my mentors in this business are people that I either never met or met much later in life when they didn't realize they were my mentor. So Seth Klarman and reading the things that he's written over the years, reading Margin of Safety in the early 90s had a very big impact on the way I thought about investing. If you remember, the New York Times used to have these interviews every Sunday in the business section with investment managers. And just reading those over the years helped me realize which things I liked, which things I didn't like, which things made sense to the way I was thinking about the world, which things I read about made me think, well, actually, that's different than how I thought about it, but it might be better than how I thought about it, and I'm going to incorporate that new tool. Or those are things that don't make any sense to me, and I'm just going to stay away from them. The Money Masters by John Train, just reading interviews in all sorts of different forms, the old Investor Dealers Digest and all these other publications that used to publish manager interviews. I've been reading those since I was in high school. And I always found that to be a really rich source of informing and forming my investing style. Most of those meant I was fortunate to be able to meet Seth Carmen later after I'd already started Edinburgh, also a big baseball fan. And that was a huge honor for me. But to know that you can stick to the things that you think are the right things to do and the right ways to do them. There are times you have to weather different storms, whether it's performance related or otherwise, because of that, but that it is possible to stick to the things that you want to do and the way that you want to do them and still be able to have a firm and a set of partners that support that. And it's a beautiful, virtuous circle when all that comes together. And so those were my primary mentors in this business were people I never met. Learning by opposite example, I think, is just as valid a way of charting your own course as learning through positive example. And it is not at all unusual for people like yourself who take the big and bold, crazy leap to start your own business, to start your own fund, tend to distill the opposite of what they have picked up at certain jobs. I think part of that has to do with the fact that when things are going well, you don't naturally question why they're going well. You just assume that they're going well and, and you just continue going through it. When things are, aren't going well or you recognize that things are causing friction, it's much easier or more obvious to try to question, well, why is that the case? So when I've been at other firms and I've seen things that have caused problems, I've kept notes on those things and thought, well, those are things that if I run my own company someday, I'm not going to have those be part of our business. So I'll, I'll give you an example. A lot of times when investment committees sit down to discuss portfolios or ideas, they have a sheet, whether they call it the morning sheet or the top sheet or whatever the sheet is, and it has a list of positions. And included amongst those columns that are on those sheets are the performance of individual positions by the day, the week, the month, whatever period you want to talk about. And inevitably, there's going to be something on there that's down 30%. And somebody over in the corner who really likes that idea and championed it is going to do one of two things. They're either going to get really tired of being asked about the thing that's down 30% all the time and they stop defending it, or they get really defensive and they over-defend it to the point where it blinds them to making good, informed, incremental decisions. So I've decided that we will not have a sheet like that. So when we sit down and we talk about a company, all we have spread out are data points about that company, financials, information, qualitative and quantitative about that company. It's completely divorced from the portfolio management side so that we can have a real research-oriented discussion about that company. We never do any sort of research team portfolio discussion of this is this size and this is this size. And then people start thinking, well, I did more work on this company and therefore I think it should be a bigger position in the portfolio because I spent more hours working on it than something else. Those things are ego-driven and they have nothing to do with establishing what the risk reward is of a given position or what size it should be in the portfolio. So I've 
intentionally separated research from portfolio management. And so we just don't have those discussions. It's much easier not to fall into those traps of defending something that's down too much or being gun shy about being asked about it if you never have that data point to look at. There's no screen around here where you could see how we're doing on a daily basis. I mean, I've been in other firms where they're tracking each strategy throughout the day. There's a running P&L of how each strategy is doing, and it's up on screens and people could see it. And you know people are looking at that and thinking, oh gosh, I'm, tra I'm trailing Schmitty. I gotta go do something over the next hour and a half to try to change that. I mean, what terrible short-term thinking. So we don't have that. There's nothing on my desk right now where I can go and click on it and say, oh, this is our P&L today. I'm not gonna make a good decision today based on whether we were up or down 80 basis points yesterday, it's irrelevant. So I don't want to look at that every day, so I don't. I don't want it to be a distraction, so it's not. I don't want my research team to be looking at the return on a position since inception because it's it doesn't help us make a good incremental decision. I don't want a screen in the office that people can go walk by. There's no CNBC on here because it's unhelpful to our process. You have a Bloomberg in your office, don't you? I do have that. I resisted it for a long time, but it became a really important source of information, especially for charting and other purposes. And during the pandemic, when I was the only person here, it was a really good way to deal with what was going on and chart and monitor what was going on in the world. But there's no P&L information on our Bloomberg. I have charts up here of the 10-year and general market-related information to see where there are stresses and I can do research on our companies. It's a research tool. I, I want it to be a pull device where I go to it when I want something. I don't want stuff pushed at me all the time because, again, there are certain settings here where I can see cattle prices throughout the day. Irrelevant. I don't want to see it. And so, anyway, we've tried to reinforce all of these processes through things like not having the data readily available that we don't want to influence us on a short-term basis. We're out in the suburbs. Why? A, it's close to my house and I like that. But also, we don't get polluted by other people's ideas. We're not going to idea lunches all the time. Our big idea is what are we going to have for lunch today? That's part of the process. You know, Our next door neighbor here is a Pizza Hut franchisee. They're rolling in a different kind of dough. It's not the same thing as one of these hedge fund hotels in New York where everybody's jumping into the same idea at the same time. So it affords us the flexibility to do what we want to do without the pollution of other people's ideas. So it's all part of just reinforcing the processes you want to have. And I confirm that if on occasion mid-month we're talking about something, I've said, hey, how's it going? You say, Ellen, may I remind you that I don't look at performance mid-month. I don't care. It's not relevant. But that's probably a great segue, John, to just talking about the way you run your portfolio really reminds me of the way private equity people think. And so maybe you could step back and just talk to us about how you figured out that you could view public markets through a private equity lens. So I'll give you a little bit of history there. So I mentioned I worked for a private equity firm after I worked in investment banking. It was a really unique firm that was part of a public company. It was part of what was then the General Cinema Corporation. We had a small eight-person team that was investing in private companies. And there were a few things that came out of that that were really influential to what we do. One is, unlike most pre-MBA private equity jobs that are so focused on churning out book after book after book and model after model, this was much more focused on the post-investment side, what to do with the company after you invest. And so as a result, at a fairly young age, I was spending a lot of time working with management teams and boards, identifying 
long-term roadmaps for increasing value in the businesses. And we would do everything we could to try to help the companies from helping them find customers, new management team members, helping them with reporting, what are the right metrics to look at internally to manage the business? What are the right metrics to report externally? We'd help them with acquisitions, whatever we could do to increase the value. And I've very much taken that perspective into account in how we can interact with companies today on the public side. Inclusive of that private equity experience was the awareness that we were able to run a really interesting portfolio with only eight companies on average. And you don't worry when you're in private equity about all the things that you don't own. You're going to make money or lose money based on the things that you are invested in. So everything else is a distraction. So all these other things that are going on with the meme stocks and all this other stuff, just a distraction and it's noise. And we just focus on the things that we do own. We certainly pay attention to the industries that our companies are invested in. That goes back to the private equity approach. Try to understand everything going on upstream and downstream in an industry, how value is likely to flow over the next couple of years. But it's a bottoms up approach of finding individual companies and then trying to understand those industries well. But I thought that there would be a way to interact positively. We are not confrontational activists. We do file 13 Ds on companies, but we're not confrontational activists. We're looking for situations where we can interact positively with management teams and boards. Many confrontational activists will look for situations where management teams and boards don't own a lot of stock because they want to force change. They want to be able to control votes and run directors and proxy contests and those sorts of things. And that's people have made a fine living doing that. But that's just not our strategy. And I don't want to build those types of long-term negative relationships. We're trying to build long-term positive relationships. And we have companies in our portfolio that have been in here for eight plus years. We've got really good relationships with the management teams we invest in. There are times when we'll have, of course, we'll have disagreements and there will be times when we may push for changes behind the scenes with management teams, et cetera. But for the most part, we're not of the opinion that we always know better than management. Sometimes it's just, we actually might have a much longer time horizon than they initially do. So in the public markets, we might encounter a company that was pushed by its VC backers to grow at any cost. And as a result, they've built up this massive operating cost basis because they at one time were growing at 40, 50, 60%, and they staffed up accordingly. But now they're growing at six, eight, 10%, and their operating costs are no longer in line with the growth rate of the company. And they're just much farther along on the S curve than they realize that they are. And sometimes they need to simply be reminded of that. And so the VCs blow out and they distribute their stock to their LPs who sell it. And you've got this cascading down of the stock price at the same time that the fundamentals seem to be deteriorating. And so we try to come into a situation like that and say, shareholders that you used to have have left. The reason that they invested in you because you were this high growth business are no longer relevant. Maybe you can reignite growth at some point, but let's look at who you are as compared to who you used to be. You're now a slower growing less profitable, maybe unprofitable company because you're spending too much on operating costs. So what if you were to reorient the company over the next couple of years in this fashion? Maybe there's some more growth you can get out of this, but maybe it makes sense to right-size the operating costs, become a more profitable, more cash-generative business because there really is no market for a slow-growing or declining unprofitable company. And so we try to build that long-term relationship with the company to be able to establish that we will be partners with them over the journey of going through this process. We recognize that it will probably not be a perfectly linear path. There will be opportunities for us to continue to add to our position along the way because there will probably be some volatility in that either because of that nonlinearity or just because of the way they trade idiosyncratically. 
but you have to come to them at the right time also. If you come to them after there's been this capitulation, it's somewhat easier to get them to have the courage of their convictions to do the right thing. I mean, if everything keeps going up and to the right and everybody loves them, it's much harder to get them to make change. And really, that wouldn't be a situation we'd be attracted to anyway, because it's most likely the valuation wouldn't be that appealing. But if we can come to them at the right time and say, what are the things that you would do today to really increase value three years from now? Here are the things that we think you can do. Here's how we can help you get there. Here are other companies that we've worked with in similar situations where we've done these things. Here are other CEOs, chairmen or chairwomen you can speak to that we've worked with before who can talk about how we work with you. And it's certainly possible that someone tells us to take the next bus out of town if we give them that speech. But one of our qualitative criteria that we use for evaluating investments is alignment of interest. And we want management teams and boards that are aligned with us. And that includes share ownership. It includes demonstrated history of using their own after-tax salary proceeds to buy stock in the open market, potentially using the company's balance sheet at appropriate times to repurchase undervalued stock. It includes compensation plans that are well-aligned with what we think are the levers for increasing value. And if you've identified all of those things in advance, it's much less likely that you're going to go in to talk to someone, have a rational conversation with them, explain to them how what you're proposing could create a lot more value down the road and have them say no. Because if they're owners of the stock, they should at least be interested. Now, they may say, hey, sounds good, kid, we, but we've got a much better plan. I will say, great, what is it? And if they say it and it sounds reasonable, I would tell them, that sounds really interesting. I don't have a monopoly on good ideas, but you're certainly not communicating that to Wall Street. Nobody knows that's what you're doing because you're not talking about any of that. So if that is the plan, here's how you can better communicate that. I would say most of the time that doesn't happen. Most of the time we come to them after they've been on this treadmill of quarter to quarter performance. And you know, if you've got a stock that's been going up and you've got a sell side following, it's much harder to make those long-term investments in the business to make real change. Because I'll give you an example. There was a company that we had an investment in. We still have an investment in, so I don't want to say exactly which it is, but they had a division that we thought was not providing a whole lot of value to the company. And we thought that they should sell it off. And there was a time when the stock was doing better and they thought, well, if we sell it off and if people are valuing us on a multiple of revenue and we get rid of a portion of the revenue, even, even though it'll make us a much more profitable long-term company, we might get dinged for that. Well, guess what? Then a pandemic hit and nobody cared about anything and stocks were decimated. That's a great time to have the courage of your conviction, right? All the people that you thought were going to sell, they're gone. So that in and of itself can create the dynamic for creating change or forcing change. But I would say for the most part, I have found that having that private equity approach, thinking through what would we do if we owned the whole company, how would we make improvements, and then working with the company to try to affect those changes, along with whatever good ideas they might have, things that dream projects they wanted to do. There are times when companies will say, boy, I, I would have loved to have invested more in R&D to widen our moat, but I was afraid it was going to hit our earnings. Look, if you can create a much more valuable company three to five years down the road by doing that, you should do that. And the people that don't want you to do that are not the shareholders you should be chasing anyway. So by the time we get involved and invested, it's a fairly sleepy, plain vanilla shareholder base. There are not a lot of funds that look like us in the shareholder roster, and it's a good time to build a position and work with management to try to create and foster long-term value-creating change. So you are describing a courtship process that requires a lot of patience you're sharing a lot of your thoughts and ideas in support of what are typically 
smaller companies, microcap companies, primarily in the U.S., and maybe newer managements that are not used to dealing strategically with the street. So that leads quite naturally, I would think, to a highly concentrated portfolio. You are a believer in concentration. I would love for you to talk to us a little bit about concentration and risk control. So first off, concentration. I think you should, as I mentioned, when I was in private equity, we would have eight positions on average in the portfolio. And that is partly a function of time. You can only spend so much time working closely with companies. But it's, from my perspective on the public side, it has a lot more to do with, yes, efficiency of time, but also if you can get the risk reward right, especially when you're trying to find these really asymmetric risk rewards where you can potentially have a very good long-term compounded return. And in your downside case, you have a fairly limited amount of downside during periods like the pandemic. And so when we find these really asymmetric opportunities that are multi-year compounders, we want them to work and they can take a long time. I mean, we've had situations where we've owned something for three or four years and you get 90% of the pop in the last two weeks that you own it because it gets it finally gets acquired at a good price. But sometimes these are multi-year compounders where they continue to go up over time we will build a position up to 15% at market. And then we generally aren't buying after that. We let it work. But if we're going to build something up to 15%, we also have to let it run. We can't build it to 15 and then say 20 is our max because then we're only going to get an incremental five points out of that investment. You've seen our results. They can be a little lumpy. But when you're investing in businesses that you think, just to put it in rough numbers, if you think you're investing in businesses that are going to double over three to four years, that's an 18 to 24% compounded return. If you're not fully invested, you're talking about something in the mid-teens that you're targeting on a multi-year basis. If you can do that without leverage, that feels like a pretty good opportunity set for us. And one way to get there is by being concentrated, we can know our companies really well. We're generally one of the largest shareholders in our companies. We think we're one of the best informed investors in our companies. We try to add a lot of value that way by being informed about what's going on with the competitors, et cetera, and the industry. But it also allows us to really get a nice return from all these coiled springs that we have in the portfolio. I don't know what's going to hit at any one time. We have things that have been in this portfolio for a long time that will hit at some point. When they do, I don't know. But if you have a 10% or a 15% position that's going to go up two to three times, whenever that happens, that's a really nice incremental source of returns. Last year, we had a position that was a 15% position that went up 300% in the fourth quarter. That's going to be additive to returns. And so to me, it's worth waiting to get those things right. And we have the patience and temperament to wait for those and work through them. But there's also a portfolio management side to it, which is we will trade around our positions. We'll do a lot of that through options. So in terms of risk control, there's a few things. If you're going to be so concentrated, make sure you don't get many things wrong. Our realized losses have been very modest because if things do change early in our process, we've got a pretty defined process for how to grow our positions over time. We try to cut bait early if we got the thesis wrong or whatever it is. But if we really think we're right, and we've got data to support that, and we think the investment is really asymmetric risk reward, we'll continue to invest in it over time. I mean, one of the benefits of having grown for the last 10 years is we've had capital come in episodically. And the ability to continue to put that new capital into the same companies at improved risk rewards along the way has been a powerful force for continuing to coil the springs we have in the portfolio. So when they when they pop, they, they pop in a big way, both in terms of percentage and dollars. And to us, it's worth waiting for those. So knowing the position well is a big risk control. 
But price is the biggest risk control. Well bought is half sold. I firmly believe that. And the best way to not lose money is to invest at a low price. Now you have to do all the work to make sure you're not in a value trap because you can invest in a low price and find out it's got a lot more room to go. Companies can be volatile. The size capitalizations that we invest in can have lower trading volume. They can have more tightly concentrated holders. So there can be a lot more volatility in them. And certainly in the short run, companies can trade below what our downside estimate is, but that's a point in time, short-term voting mechanism. It has nothing to do with the long-term value. And so we try to assess what we think a company is worth today, what we think it's reasonably likely to be worth over the next three years under a range of scenarios. And we're trying to invest at a significant discount to what we think it's worth. If you can do that consistently, it makes it less likely you're going to lose money. And then our involvement which goes back to the private equity side. We're not just passive investors. We try to be actively involved in the companies we invest in. So this is a very simple example, but if we invest in a company at, say it's $20 a share, and we think over three years, our expected value is that it'll be worth $40 a share under probability weighted bull base bear case scenarios. And in our downside case, we think it could be worth $16. So you've got $20 of upside, you've got $4 of downside. That's a five to one risk reward. Let's say the stock drops 10% because it's something happened on earnings or it's Tuesday or whatever the reason. Now it's at $18. Nothing else has changed. You've got $22 of upside. You've got $2 of downside. That's now an 11 to 1 risk reward. So your risk reward is more than doubled on just a 10% move in the stock. That's a great opportunity for us to put incremental capital to work. And that would be fine if we were just passive investors. But what if we can work with the company going through the playbook of other things that we've done with other companies or something new that we spot in this company to help them take that potential, whether it's through improved operations, outsourcing of some business line or whatever the case might be that's unique to that company. Now, all of a sudden, we've had a direct impact on the risk reward of that investment. So it's a virtuous circle of working with the companies to decrease the risk, potentially increasing the reward as well, and also having a concentrated portfolio, knowing those well to be able to spot those opportunities to put more capital to work in them at the right time. John, I want to just tie in and have you talk a little bit about how you've built the firm. I think your patience in fundraising and also patience in building out your team in function of how the fundraising was going has always really impressed me. And you were just very careful the way you bootstrapped your business over time in terms of the hires you made. So how have you found the right LPs for a strategy that, frankly, as I've experienced, can be on a mark-to-mark basis pretty volatile due to the nature of the companies, due to the markets, and also due to the concentration in the portfolio? So there are a couple of parts to that. So on the LP side, I try to be very upfront with people that this is probably not for them. The first conversation is this is volatile. It's a very low hit rate endeavor. So I don't want to do anything proactively. Most of our capital that we've raised over the last four or five years has come via referral. And so that's the best source. And so it's a really efficient way to grow your business. And you're already, when you get recommended by someone that has had a good experience with you, it's a much better way to find new investors. But we've been very slow to raise capital intentionally. We've turned down more capital than we've raised because people are not great fits for it. I can tell when someone is going to be a bad fit. When we were first starting out, we talked to some seeders. That has worked for many firms, and God bless those folks who have gone that route. But to give up that portion of the business and that much control 
wasn't a good fit for us. I had a long-term view. I started this business when I was 37. I had a long-term view that I would do this for 25 to 30 years. There's this old Mickey Mantle line about when he realized he had not treated himself so well with the way he lived. He said, well, if I knew I was going to live this long, I would have treated myself better. I would have taken better care of myself. He died shortly after I started working in investment banking. And seeing that clip over and over with him saying that, it really stuck with me. When I started this, I thought, well, I'm going to do things with the belief that I'm going to be doing this for 30 years. And so I don't want to make short-term decisions. If I find the right person that I want to hire, what does it matter if that person starts six or 12 months after I first think about hiring them? It's, it's when it's the best opportunity for that person mixed with when it's a good opportunity for us. And so also with the LPs, what was the rush? We've built a wonderful investor base that I wouldn't trade for anybody else's because they've been patient and supportive. We have investors that will call us and say, we're thinking about putting in more capital on X date, but if you see better opportunities before that date, please let us know. We'd like to do that. I mean, that's that takes time, and I'm really fortunate that we've been able to do that. But a portion of that is self-selecting because there are so many people we've identified as not being good fits. I mean, you can tell when, you know, if we have a great quarter and all of a sudden the phone starts ringing off the hook and people say, hey, now we really want to ramp up our due diligence. We try to be very clear about this in every one of our letters. And those who take the time to read them and understand what we're doing will really know what we're about. And over a multi-year basis, we've done the things that we have set out to do. But I think turning down the easy money and the quick money, uh, I think you told me this very early on, that not being greedy about growing too fast will actually allow us to have a much better long-term business. And you were absolutely right. I've also never asked anybody to invest. I've explained what we do. And if people want to invest and they say, well, I'm interested, send me the docs, great. But I've never asked anyone. That came from an old Warren Buffett practice, I believe, when he was running the Buffett partnership. He never asked anybody to invest. He wanted them to ask him because then they're making the decision to commit. And you know, at the end of the day, if you have bad results, it doesn't really matter who asked whom. People are still going to be upset. I do think it's important for somebody else to make the commitment. I do have a good friend, though, when I was first starting here who wanted to invest early on. And he said, I'm only going to do it if you ask me for the order. We were sitting at a cafe in Little Havana in Miami. And he asked me, he said, I'm only going to invest, but you have to ask me for the order. I said, okay, you're the one person I'm going to ask. And that was March, 2012, I think. And I've never asked since. He's still with us, thankfully. So part of it's just patience. I, I just figured we'll get there when we get there. You know, I started small intentionally. I started with friends and family capital. I wanted to show what a turn of the portfolio would look like. And I knew that would take at least three plus years to do because the kinds of companies that we're investing in generally will take that amount of time to play out on average, some longer, some shorter. But I wanted to have that ability. So when I started the company, several of my day one LPs put strategic capital, I guess you would call it, isn't, but it, really they put some money into the management company to allow me to run the business for three to four years if I never raised a penny. And that allowed me to just focus on the returns. I mean, you see people start firms all the time. They do a couple of things that I think are dangerous, where they either they hire a huge staff in advance of assets, in which case there's this huge rush. You've got to raise assets because now you've got this big staff. Or even if they have a long-term strategy, they feel they have to put up results in the first three to six months in order to raise capital. And I thought, well, first of all, long-term strategy, what do the first three to six months even mean? It could be lucky, good luck, bad luck, whatever it is. Let me get to the point where a number of these companies have been acquired and we can show what the portfolio really looks like. And that's what we did. So at the beginning, it was really growing through referral of in the friends and family network. I have investors here from every place I've worked since college. 
college roommates, college friends. I have friends who every year they get their bonus. They put a little bit more in, in the fund. And then when you and I met, we were first starting to think about doing something on the institutional side. And by that point, we had demonstrated a turn plus of the portfolio and we had a good track record to point to, not just financial track record, which is important, but a process standpoint. We are explicit about why we're investing in something. We invest because it's got these characteristics and this is what we think is going to happen and this is how we think it's going to play out. And these are who we think are potential buyers of this company. We've had 15 companies acquired in a fairly concentrated portfolio. We haven't gotten everything right, of course. And sometimes other things happen than what we initially thought would happen. But we've got a pretty good track record that we've written down about what our process is going to be and how we're going to manage through volatility. And that just, it builds on itself. The more you see those things work and the more your investors see those things work, the more they trust it, the more they put in incremental capital. And so it's created a really nice positive feedback loop. And as I've told you, if while we are still open, if we never raised another penny and we compounded what we had for the next now 20 years out of the 30 years, that would be a pretty good result too. So maybe just, can you tell us in a perfect world, what is the ideal size for your fund? Some of it's going to depend on the structure of the market in that the longer I've been in this business, the fewer competitors we seem to have in terms of people that are willing to be multi-year investors in smaller capitalization companies. And so maybe that creates a little bit more headroom than we thought we had. But I would say that we've capped ourselves at $500 million of raised institutional capital. So we'll be above that because of compounding. Something in that high hundreds of millions of dollars range feels like the right place to stop. So whether it's six, seven, eight, something in there is where we'll stop. We might stop before we hit that $500 million cap because I really want to leave room for compounding. From a process standpoint, when we started with under $2 million, it was laughable to put in terms that said, if we get to $300 million, we're going to lower these fees here. Be, uh, yeah, okay, good for you. And when you're seven foot two, you can dunk. <laughs> we hit these breakpoints and fees go down. And that's a wonderful thing because our goal, I did that when we had nothing because I wanted to signal that this is not a marketing vehicle. This is not an asset gathering business. I'm a very competitive person. My long-term ability to compound capital is much more important to me than the amount of capital that we're managing, because that's what we do for our investors. I want to post better long-term numbers. And size is the enemy of performance in many cases. And we wanted to institutionalize that and memorialize it so that we would be held to it. We certainly have the ability if we get to that level and then there's massive drawdowns, either because of idiosyncratic things in our portfolio or the world blows up or whatever it is, for people to then add to those positions so that they can take advantage of big drawdowns. But the goal and the signal is our goal is to compound capital, not to be a big manager of assets. In fact, we have a new family office who came into our fund in April. And when I was doing one of the last meetings with them, one of the senior people at the family office said, how come you haven't been more of an asset gatherer? I explained this very situation. It would not be to the advantage of our existing investors for us to do so. I have to manage our investors' capital. They're our LPs. It's like you can't worry about the investments you haven't made. You can't worry about the investors that you don't have. We just try to take good care of the people that we do have. And over time, again, that because things have generally gone reasonably well, that leads to some positive introductions. And if we're fortunate enough to grow, that would be great. But I really think that we're in a sweet spot. We've got a, I think we have a competitive advantage in investing in the size companies that we do, working closely with management teams and boards. And again, what is that spurred by? A lot of these companies just don't have the bandwidth 
at the managerial level or the board level to really think through what are the things we should be doing to really increase value over the next three years and or they just don't have institutional support to do it. So we try to be that support for them. We want to be one of the top shareholders, not because it looks nice, but because it in many cases can help protect them against more confrontational activists who might have a shorter term game plan. I mean, we've been in situations where we haven't been the largest investor and there might have been other 13D filers ahead of us who had shorter term game plans and they wanted to put a pelt on the wall. They wanted to be able to say, hey, we did something here. We made something happen. But that something that they made happen wasn't necessarily the best long-term outcome. So when we identify a company that we think is going to need some assistance and be a longer term, probably non-linear situation, we want to be able to be at least one of the largest, if not the largest shareholder, to be able to provide cover for management and the board from more confrontational activists. But John, have you ever had trouble distinguishing yourself from those bad, awful activists with managers? I mean, I know you spend a lot of time getting to know them and also demonstrating to them that you've done your homework. But if I were a young CEO, I would be highly skeptical of the young John Brolin coming in the door. How do you convince them that you are not a short-term partner who's going to flip their stock? So in the earlier days, that was harder because A, I was younger. But B, when we first started out and we would own half a percent or 1% of a company, because our ideas were positive, we could establish good relationships with companies. Generally, if you want to be negative, the thought was you have to be over 5% and then you could run a process and whatnot. But the combination of being positive and collaborative and being big shareholders of these companies, I think is a powerful combination that has helped us because A, we can influence them positively. B, we can provide some cover. C, we still have the ability, though we don't want to exercise it. If we ever really wanted to push for something, if we think they're doing the wrong thing, we could if we had to. We don't want to go that route. But there were times when we were smaller where there were two other 13D filers, and then we came along and filed a D, and there might have been an assumption that we were working together, and I had to go out of my way to demonstrate that we have nothing to do with them. I would fly around the country and individually meet with each board member to say, hey, this is us. This is our story. This is why we like the company. This is what we want to do over the next couple of years. And over time because we have had a good track record of relationships with management teams and boards, we have a reference list. We give this out to potential investors, but also to companies that we talk to where we'll say, hey, here are three or four people that you can talk to who will talk about this type of situation you were in is the same situation they were in. Here's how we worked with them. So again, it's the old, it takes a lifetime to build a reputation. You can lose it in a minute. We try very hard to make sure that people management teams and boards understand that we're not like that. We want to be collaborative. We want to work with them, but it takes time. It takes time to build that relationship. Let's talk about a situation broadly defined where you would be motivated to join a board of one of your companies in the portfolio. So in general, I would prefer not to because it's very time consuming and I don't want to be restricted I don't want our investors to be restricted. And it's not so much the sale, because I think if we get the risk reward correct and the asymmetry of it, it's really the buying window that can disappear when you're on a board. So many companies will have this two business day rule where something happens and management teams and boards can't transact for 48 hours afterwards. Many times we wish they would transact, but sometimes 
a lot of the liquidity that you're going to find when something sells off after earnings happens the day after or the day of if they report in the morning. We want to be able to be buying on those days and not have to 48 hours later, that liquidity may dry up. Now we can still source blocks. We work with a number of block trading firms that we can work with and try to source blocks. But those really liquid days can be great days to buy. We prefer to be collaborative, involved shareholders where we are not restricted, fully bound by all of the Reg FD requirements. And we don't know anything until everybody knows everything. But there have been two situations where I have gone on the board. Now, one's a private company, so we can invest in a certain percentage of the assets in private companies. So I am on the board of one private company, but I'm also on the board of one public company. And that arose because I thought we could really make positive change in a way that by being on the board, that would not have been possible as an outsider. It has a lot to do with the characteristics of the board at the time I went on the board the legacy of people that were on the board, the tenure of the people that were on the board, and our ability to introduce some new ideas. Plus, at the time, we already owned a large percentage of the company. So I was much less worried about being restricted. If we couldn't buy another share except for these six-week windows that we have, we would be okay because it was already a large position. Those are unique situations. And all else equal, we'd much prefer not to be on a board. And somewhat as a corollary, would you consider, and under what circumstances, ever taking a public company private? It could happen. Certainly during the height of the pandemic, some of those conversations occurred because companies traded down to ridiculous valuations. And I think it would be a combination of a really attractive valuation, a really strong alignment of interest with management teams and the boards, a belief that we could benefit current shareholders by bidding a fair price for it so that they would be rewarded, but at a level that would still allow us to compound at high rates of return over a three to five year period if it were to stay private that long before then potentially selling the company to a strategic buyer or maybe taking public again, depending on what the market environment was like. We've explored it with attorneys to the extent that we know what sort of structure that would look like. And we've talked about it with some of our largest LPs in terms of what kind of a vehicle that might be in. We've had conversations with some of our family office investors who have said, why don't you just have a separate private strategy for that? But which I'm reluctant to do because I think if you go out and you raise capital for an idea, you're tempted to put the capital to work. And I don't want to do that. Just like I love the day-to-day data that come out of baseball, I love the day-to-day opportunities that exist in the market, even though I don't want to be marked on a daily basis. Well, we are, but I don't want to pay attention to the marks. I like that any given day, something could be priced attractively. And I don't really want to just focus on privates, but if something really unique came along with a public company and we would raise capital, maybe through an SPV to take it private, it would have to have those characteristics that I defined. Our LPs would have to understand that that would be a private investment for a period of time. But I think that we've developed good enough relationships with companies where I would feel comfortable doing it in the right circumstances. They would feel comfortable doing it in the right circumstances. We've had discussions at various times with companies about that potential. And so it's not outside of the realm of reason that we could do that at some point. And so you would probably do it outside of the fund, even though you are allowed to have private investments within the fund. I think so, because A, it would probably be too big. It would cross that asset threshold for privates inside of the the fund. And I also, it's possible not everybody would want to do it. It's not my money. It's our investors' capital. And so therefore, I want to make sure that we're not locking up capital longer than they intend to lock up capital. So we'd have to get people's permission and we'd ask them to positively acknowledge they want to be in that vehicle and go through it that way. I think that's just a better alignment. People can opt out or opt in. Exactly. I think that's a better way to do it. 
Yeah, I like that this notion of the flexibility to do it instead of uh, you raise a fund, you're going to find some companies to take private end of story really speaks to the fact that in a world awash with liquidity, the ideas are going to fall through the cracks and be opportunistic. And just as you saw during the early stages, the early months of the pandemic, there are fleeting opportunities whereby you could take something private at such an attractive price as to maybe eliminate the going private discount for control? I feel like a lot of the time we are managing private investments based on how little they trade, how little the price moves in certain windows of time. And so, again, we interact with the management teams of our companies as though we're private investors in them. We're not getting any information that others aren't, but we're, we can certainly ask a lot of questions to help them think through information they should be providing. So, you know, for instance, we might say, hey, uh, you're going through a situation right now where it seems like people are having trouble understanding how you're going to get from A to B. Maybe it's how you're going to get your operating margins from X percent to Y percent. So here's a chart that we think would be really helpful. Here are buckets of categories within your operating expenses. Here's what you're going to do with R&D. Here's what you're going to do with sales and marketing. We don't want to know any of these answers until you tell everybody else. But this would be a really nice chart for you to put up if you have an investor day or if you go to a conference or as part of an earnings presentation to be able to explain that bridge to people. And you can go fill this in. Or here are questions we think people would like to have answered or would be helpful if you could answer these questions on the next earnings call. And again, we get the information at the same time other people do, but we can help management teams think through what some of those things should be. And I think that's become more important because there isn't a lot of sell-side coverage of a lot of our companies. There might be anywhere from zero to a handful of sell-side analysts. And so we can be that almost outsourced IR communications help to them in that regard. So you wrote in your letter, this is a great quote, the next step after excess is rarely moderation. It's collapse. So maybe tell us a little bit about how you think of your portfolio construction for the next a next rocky period in the market. And I know you're not a macro guy, but there is a lot of stuff that just screams end of cycle to me. And I, I don't spend any time predicting the future. I try to find the edge in valuation based on what we see before us today, but maybe step out of your comfort zone and tell us how you plan to navigate the next bear market. So a few pieces of that, going back even pre-pandemic, I mean, there were things that we were writing about, about the, the acceleration of prices being at outside of the historical bounds of the acceleration of earnings, just things getting out of whack. Certainly that has continued to a much larger extent post-pandemic rebound. But so much of the bubble-like quality, you don't even see necessarily just in valuations. It's in this rush into, into things that people don't understand. And they start talking about things like NFTs, like they've been around for 50 years and everybody understands the ins and outs of them. And this type of bubble-like behavior is to me what's really symptomatic of nearing some sort of a peak. When that happens, it's always hard to tell. But when it does happen, it's not going to be some sort of benign neglect drift down in the market. But as you said, I don't want to predict exactly how or when that's going to happen. I just want to be in two situations. A, I want to have some protection should that happen. And B, I want to be in a position to play offense when it happens. So we've done a number of things over the years where we saw cheap forms of protection, whether it was in late August, early September of 2018, which helped protect us in December of 2018. We saw it going into, again, I didn't know that it would be COVID that was going to tip the scales last year, but a lot of these 
frothy data points were concerning to us. And so we had portfolio protection on going into the pandemic, which helped a lot last year. Part of the reason we had such a strong year last year is we didn't get into a big hole at the beginning of the year. So we didn't have a big hole to climb out of. How much cash, John, did you have coming into March of 2020? Coming into March of 2020, we had about low double digits in cash, but we had all of these puts that we had bought. And so when those puts really paid off, they became an extra significant amount of cash in the portfolio. So the VIX went up into the low 80s and we were selling these puts. And why do we do that? They're portfolio insurance, but when the VIX spikes like that, you have to take advantage of that and sell them because eventually things will calm down, the volatility will come out and the put prices will collapse. So we bought those to protect the portfolio. They did. And then we sold them. It created all of this additional cash to put into our existing portfolio, as well as into other things that were on our watch list. So we could provide liquidity at a time when others, I mean, people were selling things to prices we couldn't believe last year. And I've seen where prices have, will go to in periods like that. And we want to be in a position where we're never going to be forced to sell. So we're set up in advance of that. If that means we trail during periods where things go bananas in the short term, and we don't have that kind of nitroglycerin type of company in our portfolio, that's a risk I'm willing to take to protect capital. And so we have a sizable cash position now to be able to play offense should things happen immediately. I mean, we are deploying capital. We are looking for companies where the risk rewards are attractive today, recognizing that if we have some big sell-off, they'll probably trade to lower prices and better valuations and we'll add to them. But what we're absolutely not going to do is chase on valuation. Again, how do you protect from that happening? If price is the biggest determinant of risk, we have to be really really disciplined about not overpaying for something. And we can't, especially in this late cycle. And I hear so many people saying the opposite now, which is, well, you have to understand valuations have changed and some of these things were permanent changes. And so you have to, you have to expand your parameters and you should be paying more for these businesses. While I'm sure there's some degree of conservatism that we have in the way we look at things, overpaying for things is never a good idea for long-term investing. And so if we have to wait for the next great set of opportunities, we'll do so. And you'd be okay with the cash position going up to what, 15, 20%? We're 20 plus percent now in cash. And we would be, now there's some things that we're buying today and there's some things that we're selling today. So there's some changes to that and we have periodic inflows. So that can change the cash level. But I think the average net cash position across all of Wall Street right now is about 2%. So there's not exactly a lot of dry powder. It's one of the biggest things people talk about, how much dry powder there is out there. I'm not sure that's true. And if it is, maybe that gets you some last euphoric burst before the bubble pops, but things will come down eventually. And I'm prepared to wait for those. We have a portfolio of attractively priced investments that we are adding to, and we're happy to continue to do so at current prices. But we also know in terms of our research process, we're considerably ramping up the work on things that are trading at levels above where we want to pay today, but we're doing the work today, identifying good businesses that meet all of our qualitative criteria. They just don't meet the quantitative criteria right now of risk reward, and they're on our watch list and we'll wait. And when they get there, we'll buy them. We don't use any leverage. That really helps us. We try not to overpay for anything. We try to significantly underpay for things. That helps us. We have cash. That helps us. I mean, cash to me is a costless option. People say, oh, it's such a drag. It's such a drag. I don't think it is. I mean, you've seen those situations we've had where something we have falls 40% on earnings. If you have a 15% position and it falls 40%, now it's a 9% position. If I want to take it back to a 15% position that day, I want six points of cash to put into it. I don't want to have to make a separate decision. Well, what do I have to sell in order to buy that? And when you can make those incremental investments and then those investments then go up 
by multiples of that price, it more than offsets whatever drag there might be in the short term of not having that cash invested. John, let's go ahead and do this lightning round before we conclude. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work or family? Definitely baseball. Although music too. I'm a big music fan. I listen to music. I have a nice nice vinyl collection that I really enjoy. It's old school. There is definitely something to it that I really enjoy. I play the piano, but baseball is probably number one. Most important daily habit. I know everybody says meditation these days. I have meditated a grand total of zero times. I know it would be awesome if I said that, but it's just not true. Reading is definitely my most important daily habit and not work reading. Reading for interest outside of work. I'm going to read all day at work also, but it's really important to me to have outside things to read about, historical fiction, fiction, biographies. That is a very important daily habit in the evening. In the morning, I'd say a very important daily habit is exercise. I try to exercise every day. It really just sets me up for the day, feeling better. I'm a big believer in the whole sound mind, sound body. They go hand in hand. What is your biggest personal pet peeve? It's actually related to, which I think is coming, investment pet peeve, which is I've listened to 180-something Capital Allocator shows, so I know that one's coming. It's lack of intellectual honesty. It's so easy to say that, but when people come up with different reasons for why they're doing things or when on the investment side, it's easier to talk about it on the investment side. It's an easier example. But a lot of times when something doesn't go right with an investment, people say, oh, well, let's just sell it and we'll learn a lesson here. And they sell it because they don't want to see it on that morning sheet and they don't want to have it looking at them. But if you just sell it and then don't talk about it again, you've actually learned nothing from it. So the same thing happens in life where people just say, let's just throw some money at this problem. It'll go away and we won't have this problem again. And I think it's really important to do the analysis, to go through what is sometimes a painful discussion of really trying to figure out, well, did we get something wrong for the wrong reasons? Did we miss something? Did this go down because we missed something? Did it go up for a reason that we didn't anticipate? Were we right for the wrong reasons? And I think it's really important in life and in investing to think through those things, to really think through what happened in a decision-making process. And it shouldn't be a painful process if you're not looking at the numbers related to it. If, As an example, and I'll tie it back into process, we don't have an eat-what-you-kill philosophy here. Everything that goes wrong is my fault. Everything that goes well, we all share. And so nobody has to feel like I can't say something about a given idea because that's somebody else's. Everybody is responsible for everything. We don't have that many positions, so it's easy to do that. And then it also takes away the difficult discussions that might otherwise arise if, if somebody doesn't want to bring up a point. You know, I don't want to bring up a point. It's going to hurt somebody's feelings. If you think that the capital is at risk because we've missed something on an investment, you have a duty to bring that up. And I think not having the assignment of this is your idea, this is my idea, takes away a lot of that. And I think it's true in life too. People don't do the what can be difficult work of really figuring out why something went right or went wrong. And if, it's very hard to make good incremental decisions in the future if you don't know why you made them in the past. Do you have a favorite book? I have many series of things I like. So if I had to pick one, I would say Winesburg, Ohio, Sherwood Anderson book, which I read in high school. It's essentially a book of short stories, but they all involve this one character, George Willard. And so you get to see his progression going from child to adult through the lives of all of these people in his small town. I really enjoy, I've always been a fan of small town stories and small town music, but that was a book that had a real impact on me when I was in high school, it led to a lot of other authors. I love historical fiction. I love the David List series that involved Benjamin Weaver. So Conspiracy of Paper was the first book in that series. And there are a couple of others, uh, Spectacle of Corruption and The Devil's Company. I love history books. I've read dozens of Civil War and Grant books and all the Ron Chernow books and all those sorts of things. So pretty varied interest list. 
And I love all the great classic investing books as well. My bookshelf here is full of them. And I learn a lot from those that I take with me. And I, I love going back and reading ones. Against the Gods is a great book. Those sorts of things. Not the textbook kind of books, but the ones that have real applicable stories. What was the biggest mistake you made and what did you learn from it? The biggest mistake I made was waiting too long to do something that I knew was the right thing to do. That's a common mistake I think I've made multiple times, but I can point to so starting my business. I could have started this sooner. I think starting this was the real push forward that I needed for the rest of my life to show that if you're really going to do it, you have to do it. You can't steal second base with your foot on first. Sometimes you just have to go. And it's so easy to, to look around and say, well, maybe I shouldn't. It's always easy to come up with a reason not to do something. And I think that I knew I wanted to do this for a long time. And I'm super glad I did. It's the best decision I ever made outside of marrying my wife to do this. And I would do it again. And it's not easy. It has been a hard road. At the beginning was challenging. And it is, a, as Jerry Maguire said, it's an up at dawn all day siege that I'll never fully tell you about. But I love it. I'm super passionate about it. And I love doing it every day. I wish I had started sooner. But I would say in general, that's been a mistake in life is waiting too long to do something that I know I should do. What teaching from your parents most stayed with you? I think I'm in a balance of the two sides of them. My father is a very calm, measured person. He is, uh, you know, the Comcast commercials with the Slowskis, the turtles, he's the Slowskis. <laughs> he, he will wait forever to make a decision on something, to measure all sides of something. He's a classic chess, he, he will play a chess game for eight hours if that's how long it takes. I don't have quite that amount of patience. My parents are like the book, Thinking Fast and Slow. They are both sides of that coin. And so the ability to know, I think I've tried to balance the ability to know when to react quickly to something, whether it's, my mother is the Beverly Goldberg type of mother from the Goldberg. So the quick to react mother, but knowing when to do that and when to go the slower, more patient route has been a really interesting road to travel on. But I, I learned a lot from both of them as far as how to do that and when to do that. And lastly, what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? That who I am is enough, but I can always be better. In other words, I can always be 1% better each day than I was the day before. You know, I go down to Red Sox fantasy camp and there's this quote up on the board, which I'm sure is in hundreds of locker rooms around the world, you know, be 1% better today. And I really believe that. And I think measuring myself against myself and whether I've improved and whether I know more, you know, I try to learn something new every day and be better at something every day. And measuring myself against myself has been a much more valuable use of time than measuring myself against anybody else. Because at the end of the day, I'm the only person I'm looking in the mirror. I'm the person who has to go to sleep at night and get a good night's sleep. And so all these other extraneous things that might have bothered me more when I was in my 20s don't bother me at all anymore. And I think that's a really valuable lesson to just try to be a better version of yourself. That's enough competition to last me a lifetime. John, thank you so much for taking this opportunity to speak with me. I feel that like baseball, you are the ultimate patient man and investor, not in a hurry and yet always ready for the fat pitch. I like that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ellen. I really appreciate the time and the questions. I'm honored that you chose me to do this. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time.